Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. We are back in 1 Corinthians, and we are at chapter 7, and uh, it is a... a Interesting place to be this morning. I, w- I would encourage you that as we go through this scripture, understand, I'm not giving you my opinions. I'm not giving you, I'm just, we're looking at the Word of God. So I encourage you as things start to, I guess you could call them speed bumps or hooks, where you say, well, I haven't heard that. I don't think that. Or what, what, just reserve your judgment until the end, because I promise you, this is God's Word. It never returns, nor avoid, and it is my prayer that this will help you. It is my prayer that this will help our marriages. This will help our view on things when it comes towards sexuality and spirituality. And so the church at Corinth, we know from chapter 6 and, and, and before that, the church of Corinth had lost their whole understanding of the gospel message. And again, I can't say that enough. We're talking about the church folks, not the people outside the walls, but the people inside the walls of the church. They were confused because the culture that they were in began to skew the views of sexuality and marriage and commitment and divorce and what was once thought to be rock solid and and convictions and all that kind of stuff because of the culture they were in. They started watering down the message. Now, that doesn't sound like today, does it? It is like it was written today. And I'm telling you, what we see that's happened in the past in the Bible, it comes in cycles. And so, as we approach chapter 7 today, this chapter 7 is not just Paul deciding to pick up something and run with it. They actually wrote him letters asking him questions. Hey, what about this? What about that? And so this part of the book of 1 Corinthians is actually his response to their questions. And the truth of the matter is, many in the church still have the same questions today. So today we find ourselves returning back to our walkthrough of 1 Corinthians after experiencing a fantastic Easter weekend. I'm so proud of all our people and leadership from those that led the egg hunt, to singing the Easter choir and, and legitimately making everybody feel welcome. God was glorified and the love of God, of Christ, was shown through you. Thank you so much, church, for that. And thank you for following that up with coming here today. Some of you are here, that were here last week are here this week. Thank you. We do not take that for granted. And although the Easter attire has been cleaned and we're moving forward in our sermon series, I am no less proud of you all, and I am so privileged to be your pastor. And so the beauty of preaching through the Bible is that you get the context of scriptures, and I shared a little bit about that a minute ago, but today and next Sunday, God's Word will be teaching us about sexuality and spirituality. We will discuss topics like marriage, divorce, and singleness, and how we should treat one another as believers. I had a friend ask me when I told him that we were going through this, he said, so are you going to be Dr. Phil or Dr. Ruth? I said, neither. Okay? I laughed and said, I plan to be neither, but my plan is this. Here's my plan for today and next Sunday. To simply walk through what God's Word says. He is the teacher. It is His precepts. And it you either believe that this is the authoritative word of God or you don't. It doesn't matter to me which one you believe, but this is the book that we go by. This is the book that the test comes from, if you remember that in school. 
It is important to note that Paul is not addressing what we're talking about here. This is not his entire teaching and theology of marriage. Again, he is answering specific questions that they had regarding their distorted views of marriage and sexuality. So you and I must be open our, open our hearts to hear his plan for our marriages, our relationships, and our church life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for bringing us here to this day. And as we open your word and as we read it together, Lord, may you illuminate our hearts. May you save marriages. May you deliver people from things that are, 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 are just weighing them down, Lord. May they walk out of here today lighter because you're carrying their burdens today, Lord. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, first of all, sexuality and spirituality are bonded by purity. Sexuality and spirituality are bonded by purity. When I first heard this, when I first read this, my old youth pastor days come back and I remember the true love weights cards and the purity rings and all that kind of stuff like that. And uh, those things were good for their time, but that's, he's not talking about signing a card. He's not talking about signing or getting a promise ring. He's talking about the fact that we see in verse one, now regarding the questions you asked in this letter. Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, or some translations say to live a celibate life. That means no intimacy. And the Greek reads, it's good for a man not to even touch a woman. And that word touch meant in the physical, sexual nature. But because there is so much sexual immorality, in other words, because this world is so bad, because of the culture that you are immersed in, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So, again, Paul is responding to questions that prove that culture has had a negative impact on the church. This church in Corinth is immersed in a sexual and immoral culture. We know from the previous chapters that they had problems in the church. There was a man sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, there were believers that were taking other believers to court and treating them horribly. And there were no rules when it came to morality in the days of Paul writing this letter. It, it looked like something you would see on a TV series today. But the church has lost its purpose and wanted to know what they should do. And I think a lot of people today want to know in the world that we are in, what should we do with all of these rights, all of these hashtags, all of these movements? Where do we respond? Well, God gives us the answer right here. They wanted to know how they were supposed to live. How were they supposed to treat one another in regards to, and I know it's kind of weird talking about this in church, but the Bible, again, we're going through the Bible. The Bible says it. Sexuality and spirituality. How can we be spiritual and at the same time honor God's gift? It is God's gift of sexuality. Well, on the celibate life, they were saying there was a thought by some of those in the church of Corinth that says, I know we will be super spiritual. We will just say we're not touching anybody. We're not we're, we're just going to deny that part of our creation and they thought that that was going to impress Paul. I guess you would call it a church answer. They were very proud of themselves on that. Even to those that were married. The ones that were married were saying, you know what? That's not even, we're just going to stay away from all of that temptation. But notice that Paul agrees that they could do that. But he doesn't say that you must do that. 
He agrees, but he doesn't elevate that to the the uh, absolute standard for every believer. Believe it or not, there are marriages that do not have a lot of physical intimacy in it, and they are okay with that. And there are some marriages that have an overabundance of it, and sometimes it may not even be healthy. But Paul offers the other side of that argument because this. Look, folks, God ordained marriage. God ordained marriage And he also ordained sexuality. We know in Mark 10, verses 8 and 9, I use this all the time in marriages, where the two become one. It is not just a physical equation, a physical fact of two becoming one, but it's also mental, emotional, spiritual. God designs us to when we are intimate with our spouse, there are connections that are made that will not last. That's why it's so tough when people are making those kind of commitments with people outside of marriage and not according to what God's Word says. Folks, sexuality is a beautiful gift that Satan in sinful treatment has distorted into something that is used as a weapon and a destroyer of marriages and people. Where he says, let each man have his own wife and wife her own husband, sexuality within marriage is not immoral. It is not dirty and it is not a sin against God. God created it to be a bond between the wife and the husband emotionally, physically, and spiritually. It's also a picture of God's redemptive plan. We are the bride of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. He's going to, re- he's going to return again and bring us unto himself. We are married with Christ. But because of the sexual immorality is so strong today... And back then, God created a specific person to be your spouse so you could fulfill those needs in a godly way. That is marriage. God brings to you that person out of all the people in the world that has been ordained for you to fulfill each one another's needs spiritually and sexually. But we see in verses 3 through 9, sexuality in marriage is spirituality. Look, we're good Baptists here. Most of us are, well, I will say good Baptists. Most of us are Baptists here. Most of us have, have heard these kind of messages and stuff like that. And I don't know why there's a, a dichotomy or a separation between, oh, no, we need to have our spiritual life and this is our sex life. It's like we're, we're apologizing for that, but no, they go together. Look at what Paul says. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. And I can hear now some of those women say, I ain't giving my husband nothing. He ain't going to have the authority over me, and nobody's going to do that. Or even vice versa. But I think the problem here is that people have been trying to interpret this verse in a sinful, non-biblical way. When we, when we really look at this, I will say first and foremost, this is not, not, not a verse that condones any type of abuse in marriage, whether it be verbal or physical, mind games, whatever. This is not, well, you know, the Bible says that my wife is mine. I can treat her like I want. No, that is not what this is saying. 
The spiritual side of sexuality and marriage is found in serving your spouse. Wait a minute, preacher. What do you mean serving? I'll go get her a drink when I'm up and, you know, that game you play where you wait till your spouse gets up. Oh, you're up? Well, you give me something while you're up, right? But no, that's not the kind of serving we're talking about here. I mean, you can do that. But the spiritual side of sexuality is found in serving your spouse to the husband. I know many of the husbands are saying, preach on, brother. Preach it. See, honey, I told you what the Bible says. The one... The woman said, the Bible says you're supposed to submit to me. And so, hey, let's go. Let's go be biblical, honey. And she said, like, slow your roll, Billy Graham. I don't see you taking the other stuff in the Bible so seriously. So let's take a moment here. And plus, I'm getting a headache. And then the wife, she says, okay, I need, I have a need for the physical stuff. But what about the romance? What about the emotional connection and the feeling that, He and I are in step together. Men, meeting your wife's needs is your responsibility. And it's not just for the physical act. It is all the needs, the affection, not just the physical attention. Sometimes it's slow dancing to a song after after chores are done. Or sometimes it's just holding hands on the couch or, or helping them out, out of the, the vehicle or opening the door for them. Simple things, but just lets them know that you're listening to them and hearing them. So don't look at intimacy, though, as in marriage as a business transaction. It's not like, okay, honey, I've done this, 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 and this. You know, hey, honey, I washed the dishes today. Huh? Yeah. All right. So that, that means, yeah, right? We have an exchange, right? No, it doesn't work like that. If your main goal, men, is to meet the needs of your spouse, and I don't mean just the physical needs, I mean the emotional, the mental, the, the, the touchy-feely stuff that you're so uncomfortable with, I want to assure you that those are needs that are being met, and God has created you to be the only one to meet them. And ladies, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, there are needs that the men have that God has created you and only you to meet those needs. It's not a checkbook ledger. It's not, I paid these acts of affection so I'm due physical attention. And also, by the way, this is also not for just when y'all are young and pretty and handsome. It's, it's for life, folks. We see that spirituality, sexuality, and marriage is focused on the needs of your spouse over your own. How many times have I heard people say, I'm not getting my needs met. I don't love them anymore. They're not the same as they used to be. All of those statements are somebody saying, I'm not getting what I want. And that is the world's view of sexuality. You get what you want your way. It's Burger King. Have it your way, folks. That's what the world says. But the Bible says, it's not about what you get. It's about what you add to that person. By encouraging husbands and wives to fulfill their marital responsibilities to one another, Paul isn't suggesting that, that, that sex is just a mere duty. Here, knock this off your list and keep going. That's not what he's saying. Our culture will tell us that our spouses want the act of intimacy all the time. Without love, care, and nurture the other person, intimacy just becomes an act. 
But here's some practical advice, and you've probably heard this before. Women are wood stoves and men are microwaves. Yeah, have y'all ever heard that before? Oh, some of you will identify with this. You may have heard that saying, women are wood stoves and men are microwaves. Meaning that it comes to, when it comes to intimacy, women are like a wood stove. They take some time to heat up. But once they get heated up, it burns bright and it's hot. Now men, they're a microwave. It takes them about 30 seconds and then after 30 seconds it's cold again. I mean, it just takes a drop of a hat. And that's the way God has kind of, uh, of wired us. And if you want more intimacy in marriage, put forth the effort into meeting the needs of the other person before your own. Don't have unreal expectations. Guys, don't expect your wife to be in a romantic mood after she has worked all day, come home and fix dinner, wash the dishes and done whatever she needed to do. You say, hey, honey, hey, how are you doing? All right. She's like, you better go to bed. Or vice versa. The husband's been working all day or doing something and he's just, you know, hey, I've been here all day. Let's, let's, I'm ready. And he's like, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. He say, well, preacher's just not right. Life is too busy. And I'm going to say, yeah, it is. But all of us have the same 24 hours in a day and we will plan what our priority is. And it doesn't sound romantic, but sometimes if meeting the needs of your partner is important, you'll plan it. Sometimes couples call it date night. They find a babysitter or, or whatever they need to do, but, but they make it a priority. If it is a priority in your marriage, schedule it. First Corinthians 7, 5 and 6 says, do not, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Isn't it amazing? He's saying, look, if, if you think that the celibate life is some kind of great uh Thing of self-control, no. Self-control is is living out your spirituality and sexuality within the bonds of what God lays out. And he says this in verse 6, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Folks, what we see here in verses 5 through 6 is this. We have a spiritual obligation to meet the needs of our spouse. When I'm doing premarital counseling and I'm talking with with couples over the years and and even, you know, Don and I have had discussions about this and and gone to workshops and stuff like that. It's all about the, the wedding and the flowers and the colors and the honeymoon and all that kind of stuff like that. But nobody thinks about what about five, ten years down the road? What is this going to look like? Folks, we have an obligation to meet the needs of our spouse. And it's not just, you can't say, well, honey, you heard the preacher say, you've got an obligation, so let's go. That, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, look, all the needs are to be met. That also means, men, you are to meet the emotional and, and spiritual and physical needs of your spouse as well. It's not a, hey, honey, look at this. It's not a, hey, honey, look at that. It is, let's look at this together and see how our spirituality and our sexuality can become one. Commitment is the key concept to any marriages. Marriages that do not last often dissolve over a lack of commitment to the marriage. 
Somewhere along the way, the world has turned our sexuality into something that is dirty and self-serving. But this has never been God's intention. In verse 5, he says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. I think this is, is pretty cool because if you go back and you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the previous chapter, where we saw that one man in the church was defrauding a man for a wrong business deal, the word they use for defraud in that word, in that instance, is the same word they use in this verse. So deprive, to deprive each other of sexual relations means that you are defrauding them. Look, I all, I, I understand that the first part of a relationship, that it is just, it's, it's, it's on. I, I understand that. But at some point, if you're not careful, y'all start to drift. And to not fulfill each other's needs is a form of defrauding them. It is saying, look, I committed to do this, but I'm not going to do this. If you hire somebody to come pressure wash your driveway and they come out and they do one squirt on a corner and they leave and they're not going to give you your money back, you're going to take them to court because they defrauded you. So what do you do when you get married and, and this man that was supposed to be so romantic and so hot, hot, hot now is, is not meeting those emotional and physical needs or even vice versa to the female to the male? It's like a bait and switch, isn't it? Paul's saying, look, and it, here's why he's saying this. I'm getting there. Here's why he's saying this. Denying intimacy is not a tool. It's not a weapon. Sleeping on the couch is not a good way to get back at your spouse. Don't be the husband claiming that you've been defrauded because you're not getting happy time with the frequency you expect. Ask yourself, am I giving my wife the affection that she needs and deserves? Wives, your husbands are not just a man with a one-track mind, believe it or not. If you're not getting the affection you feel like you need, ask yourself, am I meeting the needs of my husband or just writing it off as him being a typical male? I love this. Make sure your dry times are spiritual times. Remember he says, look, if y'all both agree to have a time of no intimacy, make sure it's through prayer and fasting. I see now, not tonight, honey, I'm praying. Not tonight, honey, I'm fasting. Like, hey, I didn't agree to that. That's not biblical. But look, it says, look, it's okay if you have that time where you both say to each other, look, we need to focus on something, so let's just make this our main focus for the next amount of time. And then it says, look, when that time is over, y'all need to get back together. Why is he so sure about that? Afterward, come together so Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm going to just say it this bluntly. When I'm, when I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, uh, and even some marriage counseling, I'll take three chairs. I'll put them side by side. I'll sit one spouse on one chair and the other one on the other end. I'll put an empty chair in the middle. And I'll tell them, I want you to understand, that empty chair is anything and everything that tries to get in the middle of your marriage. And so what Paul is saying here, in this world that is so divisive, in this world that is so messed up when it comes to sexuality, and if you do not meet the needs of your spouse, there is always somebody who will. 
If you're not meeting each other's needs, someone will. The pull will be slow and it will be gradual, but it will be strong. I find it ironic that the Corinthians questions made it sound like celibacy was self-control when actually self-control, again, is sexuality and spirituality within marriage. Sexuality in marriage is an expression of love. Since it is ordained by God, (laughs) it is an act of worship. When you serve your partner in the ways of intimacy, you are meeting their needs in a way that only you can. Think about it like this. If you need something at your house fixed, your taxes done, your vehicle worked on, no one would say anything if you hired someone to fix those things. That's, that's, we can comprehend that, right? But in marriage, if your, if your intimacy is not right, you can't go out and hire somebody to fix that for you. That's not a good thing. Again, there is one person that God has created to fulfill those needs, and we're not supposed to go outside of that, is what he is telling these church members. Sexuality and spirituality in marriage meet at the intersection of knowing that you are the only person God chose to serve your spouse's given needs. Of all the people in the world, God chose you to meet those person's needs. For the entirety of your marriage, till death or divorce, do you part. Verses 8 and 9 say, So I say to those who aren't married and to the widows, it's better to stay unmarried. If you talk to many of our widows, I, I joke with them every time, you know, every now and then I'll say, hey, you know, there's, there's, there's a man sitting over there or we need to get some men in this church. And they all say the same thing. I don't want a man. I, I've had a man. I don't want another one. And they Paul says, look, that's good. That's fine. That's great. It's better to stay unmarried, but if they can't control themselves, they should go ahead and marry. It's better to marry than to burn with lust. Paul is not against marriage, nor being single. He is for both of them. God has wired some people, there are some people in the world, to not be tempted beyond the natural limits of sexuality. For some people, intimacy is not a big deal. And if that's you, it's okay to not be married. But there are some people that that is a big deal. And he's saying, look, if, if this is a big deal to you, you need to pray and you need to, you need to handle these desires that are God-given and God-ordained and God-given ways. Remember, Corinth was depraved and everything was permissible to the culture, but not everything was profitable. Folks, don't get married just because you can't control your evil desires. Marry because God has brought you that one person into your life that is meant for you to meet all of your needs, not just for your intimacy. In verses 10 through 16, as we get to our last major section here, sexuality and spirituality require commitment in marriage. And when I say commitment, I mean commitment to God first. And then to your spouse. Just to give you a little background here. According to the way Paul writes this, there were a lot of mixed marriages in the Christian church. And by mixed, I don't mean the color of skin. By mixed, I mean Christian and non-Christian. There were a lot of people that were getting married that their, their theology and their beliefs in God did not really matter when it came to the person that they married. And that is, quite honestly, why they were having troubles. 
says in verse 10, But for those who are married, I have a command that comes not from me, but from the Lord. A wife must not leave her husband. But if she does leave him, let her remain single or else be reconciled to him. And the husband must not leave his wife. Paul is giving a concession here to the fact that marriage can be hard. Whether you are newlyweds, married five years, or been married as long as you can remember. But Paul's desire, the Bible's desire, God's desire is, is that when there is problem in a marriage, that reconciliation is the first option. Just because something, one person does something bad in a relationship is not an automatic thing for divorce. It doesn't rule it out either, but the goal is here is reconciliation. And sometimes that can happen. And Paul says, of course, sometimes it can't. We are human and we are flawed, folks. When you get married to your spouse, believe it or not, you're not Jesus. And they're not Jesus. They're going to struggle with sin. They're going to have issues and we're going to have to put up with one another, love one another, and meet those needs of one another even when sometimes it's going to be hard. Because marriage is not just what you see in the movies. Marriage is not just February 14th. It's a commitment. And some days that commitment is really easy. And some days that commitment is really, really, really hard. Two people paired into one means there will be struggles that only can be endured by commitment on both parties. When those times of trouble come, Paul urges the pursuit of reconciliation, not divorce. He said that in verse 11. But then as we get ready to go to verse 12, we see that people were using this as an excuse to get a divorce. In other words, they would go to church and and one spouse would get saved and the other one would not be saved. And they would all of a sudden say, well, you know what? I'm so spiritual. I don't need to be married to that person anymore. That's kind of a hypocritical view, isn't it? Verse 12 says, Now I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. What does he mean by that? What he's saying is, is that Jesus never spoke to that directly. But the fact that it is in the Bible, it is still the inspired word of God. If a fellow believer has a wife who is not a believer... She is willing to continue to live with him. He must not leave her. And if believing woman has a husband who is not a believer, he is willing to continue to live with her. She must not leave him. For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage. And the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children will not be holy, but now they are holy. Some of you in here, it's either happened in your life or you know people to where there was one in the relationship that was a Christian, the other one wasn't. But because of the way that believer lived, the spouse came to know the Lord. It may happen between a husband and a wife. I've seen situations where the child goes to church, becomes a Christian, and impacts the parents. I've seen where the parents go to church, and it impacts the children. So, I mean, there there is room. I mean, just because a husband or a wife becomes a Christian does not mean it's time to cut bait and move on. One of the greatest mission fields could be your marriage and your family. But it says in verse 15, But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer, in other words, the non-believer in the relationship, if they insist on leaving, let them go. 
In such cases, believing a husband or wife is no longer bound to each other, for God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Again, he's answering a question to people that had asked him something in the church. And he's telling them, look, you don't need to get divorced just because one of you got saved. The best thing that could happen is the gospel message could be shown in the way that you treat your spouse so that your spouse could see the love of Christ in the way that you treat them. They could see the change in the way that you're changing. And then they can say, that is what I want. And then all of a sudden, you go from a believer and unbeliever to two believers. Instead of plowing in different directions, you start plowing together. The gospel, folks, brings hope to broken marriages. The gospel brings hope to broken marriages. Not only can the believing spouse share the gospel with the unbelieving spouse and their children, but he or she also brings the covering of God's blessings to the marriage and family. We don't see that a lot. We don't see people that understand that a lot. But think about this. You have a, a guy and a girl and they're living together and they're trying to figure out whether they want to get married or not. And they're doing everything in marriage except signing the document, if you know what I mean. And look, I, I've, I've seen that happen. And, and, and look, it happens in this world today. But when one person in that couple gets saved, one person takes their relationship with the Lord seriously, it starts to bring a covering over that relationship to when if both husband and wife accept the Lord and they decide our marriage is going to be as God has designed, not only do you get to get your parents and your church and your preacher and everybody off your back, you have the covering of God over it so that when the world attacks you, you are now covered by this instead of out on your own. Look, I know that there are plenty of people that are living together. I call it a test drive marriage. Look, and look, I understand. I know that when you ask couples that are in that situation, why are you getting married? A lot of them will say, you know, I want to commit myself to one another. If they were honest, some of them would say, I want to get my family off my back. Or we, we, we get a bigger deduction when we file jointly, whatever it might be. But I'm telling you, folks. There is a covering under the institution of marriage, a commitment to God and a commitment to one another. So Paul is telling them, look, don't just cut bait and run. If God introduces himself into your relationship, lean into it and do everything you can to witness to this person. And again, I have to say this does not include if there is abuse in the relationship. This is not a verse that someone can try to tell you, oh, you need to stay with him or you need to stay with her. Folks, if all they want to do is abuse you, they may not have left you physically, but they've left you emotionally and spiritually and everything else a long time ago. If you look in the Bible, Rahab, she confessed her faith in God, and by that, she spared her family. Families have been changed for the better by praying spouses for many years. Even if it is the case, if you're in a saved and unsaved marriage, you have to try and be a witness. And sometimes an unbelieving spouse will leave anyway. If you have done all you can do, the non-believer still wants out of the marriage. Commitment scriptures consider that a legitimate reason for divorce. Be open to what God can do in any marriage, regardless 
of someone's spiritual status. A spouse seeing their believing partner loving them like Jesus would be the best sermon they would ever see. And not only does, I mean, I am a product of seeing my parents change before my eyes because of the gospel. I wouldn't be here today unless it happened. A child sees a change in their parent, you will see a change in that child. You want to see a change in your spouse? Change yourself. How many times has a spouse looked at the other one before marriage and said, Oh yeah, when we get married, some things are going to change. <laughs> right. They just get worse. Well, that, if my spouse would just do what I tell him to do, he'd be alright. If my, if my spouse would do what I tell him to do, she would be so much better. See, and those, those rare moments where you get to say, I told you so. Doesn't it feel good? It feels good, but it doesn't help anything. It's not about you being right. It's about you serving your spouse. So in conclusion, I would just say this. As we head into our first part of sexuality and spirituality, again, everything I've read has come right out of God's Word. Satan's weapon against sexuality and spirituality is this. Satan's weapon against sexuality and spirituality is encouraging intimacy outside of the marriage. While discouraging intimacy within the marriage. Folks, if you are having, if you are married and you are having issues with intimacy in your marriage, it it is not a... It is not a sexual thing. I guarantee you, it is communication. In any relationship, there are three pillars that every relationship stands on. Finances, communications, and sexuality. And if one is off in one area, it's like jeans in the dryer. If they get off kilter, the whole thing's going to rot. This world tells you that the best way for intimacy is outside of the marriage. And then Satan tries to tell you that you need to discourage it within it. But here's the thing, folks. If Satan succeeds in either one of those two areas, he's won the battle. For you to say, look, we've been married for 20 years and 30 years, 40 years, and that's not even a thing anymore. Yes, it is. You're just giving up. God's design has designed our sexuality and spirituality to work together. One strengthens the other. Both are hardwired for both. And I don't say this to say to be crass. I don't say this to be controversial. I don't say this to be anything other than it does say in here a marriage between a man and a woman. Period. That's the only definition that he gives. So anything else outside of that does not have the covering of Scripture. I don't say that in a hateful way. I say that in a loving way. Both go together and strengthen the marriage, bond of husband and wife together in order that all their needs will be met so that they will become all that God has created them to be. So whether you are married today or single or remarried or too young to worry about this stuff right now, I am glad that you have heard the truth from God's Word. And may the Holy Spirit work in your hearts 
in relationships. And the most important relationship that you have to work on today is your relationship with Jesus. Commit to Jesus today, your marriage. Commit to Jesus, your life. Commit your spouse. Commit to them. Commit to your family. And commit that all your relationships will give glory to God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for our time today. And Lord, this is a, whew, it's a timely message. It's one that our families need to hear. And uh, from the silence that I hear, I'm sure that a lot of people are thinking about stuff. And if there's somebody here that's mad today about what I said, I would like to say I'm sorry, but I'm not, because this is right out of your word. If there's anything that I have said that is a part and not, not truly communicating what you've had in Scripture, may that just be stripped from the mind. But Lord, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, our couples are struggling. Our families are struggling. Our singles are struggling. And they need practical advice from your word that comes from passages like this. So God, if there's one person here today that wants to start on this journey by committing their life to Christ, this time of invitation is a time where they can come forward and they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the first relationship is right between you and them. Maybe there's someone who wants to come to the altar and pray. Maybe a husband and wife just want to come to the altar And pray. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It just means that they are placing their relationship in your hands. Maybe someone wants to join the church and be baptized. Whatever that response is, Lord, may you work. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.